Hi, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today is an epic day. I interviewed somebody that I've been watching for so long. I have been hoping to get on the show for so long. And I really think this is going to register with the people watching because these spiritual, esoteric, outer space, extraterrestrial-like episodes do well. And this is all that in a bag of chips. It's with Billy Carson. He founded the television station Forbidden Knowledge TV. He has a book called Compendium of the Emerald Tablets that's a bestseller for four years, I think he said now. Since the age of seven, and at seven, he started researching aerospace at seven. So this guy has spent his whole life diving into research, reading, he said, over a thousand books. The amount of information that you're gonna get in this episode is kind of overwhelming. Billy was phenomenal. We talked about Egypt, we talked about the Anunnaki, we talked about extraterrestrials, DNA, bloodlines, nefarious energies and forces on this planet, what our body is made up of and how it works, and the general nature of this, this reality. And my favorite question, which is, how do we play this game the very best we can so that we're as happy as possible? So, so much in this episode. I hope you love it as much as I do. Please hit subscribe. Please hit the bell for notifications when you're ready to hear when we have episodes come out. And how about some fun in the messages? What were your favorite topics? I'd love to hear about it. Anyway, enjoy the episode. How are you? I'm fantastic. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Um, what do you think of our friend PJ? Oh, he's a great guy. Great, great man. Uh, I met him at a Dr. Amen uh, Foundation event. Oh, yeah, he, yeah. He, we were sitting at the same table and uh-huh. we both you know, had brain injuries. Um, and obviously, Dr. Amen was our doctor. So it was a great event. And that's how I met him. Yeah. Oh, you had a brain injury, too? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was ejected from a car. I was ejected from a car through the front windshield over the car that we hit. Uh, I didn't have a seatbelt on, obviously. I was I was 20 years old, I believe. And um, and like a rocket and tore this whole eyelid off. So all this is like reconstructed here. And uh, wow, it created a hole in the back of my brain and it ne- messed up my navigation center. So I would get for decades. I get lost in my own house, lost in neighborhoods, oh, lost coming wow. out of elevators, lost at the airport. And it was a real pain. But uh, a year ago, Dr. Armin, I started working with him. Yeah. And my brain has been completely reconfigured and the hole is gone. And those two giant dimples were my navigation are perfectly normal. Now they filled in. Huh. That's a miracle. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you just uh, got a computer upgrade. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. Great feeling to know where you're going. I would think that'd probably be pretty scary for a while. Yeah, you kind of get used. It's very frustrating. You know, the airport down here where I live in Fort Lauderdale, they knew my voice, you know, and when I call them, say, hey, I can't find my car. <laughs> they knew uh, they knew who I was right when I would answer the phone. When I would call them and they would pick up and say, hey, this is Billy. You know, they, they knew me. That So what they did was they installed this new system there because I was traveling so many times a, a week where anybody who pulls head in, they can track where you park because of your driver's license. I mean, your license plate, they have a, a special camera system now. I think it was primarily because of how many phone calls I made to them. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone so. now knows and they can thank you for that. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, mm-hmm. I've been watching your stuff and listening thank for you. so long and mm-hmm. fascinated by ancient history and civilizations and 
the nature of reality and what are we? And so it was very overwhelming for me to think, where do I start with you? Because I know we don't have all day. And so I don't know how it'll end up going exactly, but I thought I would kind of break this down. I've never kind of done an interview quite in this structure, but I thought I'd come, I had four questions, like four primary questions. And I thought we could just sort of go off on those because there were so many things that fit within these concepts and ideas. And so I thought I'll just, how about we just answer at least whatever four burning questions I have about life. And so I'm going to start with the one that actually probably led me down this path When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer a reference to the inner eye chakra, one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. So deeply. It wasn't like it started it, but it was the thing that really like catapulted me into deep curiosity and YouTube, hours and hours and hours on YouTube. And that's the question what is God? Not who, (laughs) that's a deep one. What is God? I love it. Yeah. Okay. So you want to start now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Beautiful. So the question you ask is what is God? And that's a really, really deep question. A lot of people struggle with that question. It's like the question we all ask ourselves, who are we? Where are we from? What is God? Who is God? Why me? What was my mission here? And I think the more I analyze that question myself, the more I found it wasn't something on the outside. The deeper I got into looking into researching uh, spirituality and the sciences that back spirituality, which some of that I actually learned, believe it or not, at MIT, Mm. I began to realize that it's really a journey to inner space. Mm-hmm. And so when you start looking at the micro, you discover what's on the macro. And so in quantum physics and subatomic physics, you want to find out when you look at the smallest scale of things, it gives you almost an identical mirror as to what's going on on the larger scale. So I began to realize that God is us and we are God and that God is on a data collection mission. And the whole premise of this third dimensional uh, uh, realm and human beings operating in this realm and potential other alien beings and everything else throughout the entire universe are all doing one thing, very simple, collecting information and sending it back to the source. So I think that when you ask that question, it's such a broad question, but to summarize it, it's like this. The human brain is encased in darkness. It can't see, smell, taste, hear. It knows nothing that's going on on the outside. 
but it does have friends. It has a sensory perception, so you can touch something, you can smell, you can hear. But it says to his friends, go out and, and, and bring me back some information. So the friends go out and they touch and they smell and they taste and they hear and they see, and they bring that data back to the brain. And then the brain takes that data and the friends don't know what they have. They only have the information. They got to bring it back to the brain. The brain then sorts it all out and projects a hologram mm -hmm. as to what's potentially going on outside of itself. And we navigate through that hologram based on a projection from data collected by our sensory perception. So when I saw that, when I was able to extrapolate that, I then took it to the big, to the macro, and I said, okay, so the universe is a mind. God is part of this universal mind, this universal consciousness, and there's only one consciousness. And it has, uh, it has really separated itself into Google's of entities, because Google's a number, Google's a number, and it's separated it? itself into, yeah, Google's an actual number, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's not a search engine. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> So they, what they're trying to say is we've got so many searches, you know, because they've named their searches and after our number. And so it separated itself into Google's of entities so that they can uh, find out what it's like to live in the third dimensions, dimension subjectively as me, you, a blade of grass, even a rock, you know, mm -hmm. a tree. And so all of these living things that exist throughout the entire third dimension are all doing one thing. They are transmitting back to source all the information of what it's like to be a blade of grass, what it's like to be Billy Carson, what it's like to be Danica Patrick. And so the universal consciousness is actually taking this information and it's actually collecting this data to analyze what is it like to operate through this grand experiment of this third dimension. It's a learning process and we're all a part of that. And so God has literally imbued every atom in the entire universe with this divine consciousness. And we know now through every single individual atom, it has electrons orbiting it, and those electrons can make conscious decisions based on observation. We know this because of the double slit experiment in quantum physics. Mm -hmm. So because every atom is conscious, that means that everything made of atoms is conscious. So this whole universe is one entity experiencing itself subjectively as ghouls and Googles of entities and things that exist and things that we think are inanimate, like even this microphone, for example, is made of conscious atoms. So this microphone is not just an inanimate man-made object. We didn't make this microphone. What man did was stack conscious atoms together like Legos. And then because of the format we stacked them in, it allows us to utilize this as, as a microphone. And so it's all about understanding that we are God and God is us. It's in everything and we're in everything. And separation, separation is an illusion. Division is an illusion. Distance is even an illusion. Everything is actually all one. We've been given this grand experiment through the third dimension uh, to experience the illusion of these things. But in reality, it's all about sending information back to source. And it starts with us. We all are God walking in the flesh. Mm -hmm. There's only one consciousness. If you can imagine a radio station in your neighborhood, it's transmitting out all these frequencies, right? 99.1, 99.2, 99.3, so forth and so on. And so what it's doing. That one central location is sending out multiple frequencies, right? Waves of light. And then you have a receiver, and that receiver's, you tune it to pick up 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4. And so that's what's happening. I'm 99.1, you're 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4. My avatar body has been designed to encapsulate point number frequency of the one consciousness that's already being transmitted from one source. 
-hmm. It gives me the illusion with you that we're two separate Mm -hmm. beings, but in reality, our spiritual energy is coming from one source. You just have picked up a slightly different frequency of the source, and I did as well. So I'm attuned to point one, you're attuned to point two, and so forth and so on. And that's how it actually works. So it's a frequency. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. It's a frequency. God is a frequency. It's our job to tune in. God is not a man. You hear people say reference God is him, he. They have this illusion that there's this sky daddy with a magic wand floating around granting wishes. That just really, in my research, isn't the case. It's more of a frequency, a divine frequency that is imbued in every living thing in the entire universe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So where did religion come along? That's a great question. So in ancient times, People were more into spirituality. And then they just, uh, well, when we got to one of the highest advanced civilizations, which started out in Sumer and then migrated over into the land of Kemet before it became Egypt. Was that Sumeria then? Is Sumer Sumeria? Yes, it is. Sumeria, yes. And when would that have been? The tablets date back about six to 8,000 years. But those tablets we discovered were recopied from even older tablets, which going back probably about 100 to 200,000 years prior. We're talking about a deep, deep, deep antiquity of super ancient culture. Even in the Emerald Tablets, when they relocated home base to the land of Kemet, in the Emerald Tablets, they're 36,000 year old texts. They rebuild the land of Kem uh, out of the mud, which because there was a great flood. So we're talking about ancient knowledge. They said they rebuilt Kem. They didn't build it for the first time. They said they were going to bring it back up to a high level of civilization. So it was already high before the flood. We're talking about tens of thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. And so they began to uh, create these mystery schools uh, at this dawn of this new era, 36,000 years ago. The gentleman who started this, his name was Thoth, T-H-O-T-H. And he's known as a wisdom keeper. He's known all over the entire world. And every continent I've been to, there's a depiction of him there. Even in the outback of Australia, they've got him etched into a petroglyph in the the rock. Okay. And so this is wild. So this guy the beak, the long beak nose. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. That that's him. He's he doesn't really have a bird head, but he he's depicted as such because The, the ibis bird depicts bringing darkness to light because the beak is so long, it goes deeper down into the mud to bring sustenance up. Symbolic. So that's symbolic, right? Symbology. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. But he ruled over the land of Kemet for 14 or 16,000 years, roughly thereabout, according to the ancient Egyptians. And then he left there and went to Mesoamerica and kickstarted the Teotihuacan civilization it, in Mexico City. You have Teotihuacan. You have all down throughout um, Tulum and all the way down to Chichen Itza. That was all his master architectural plan. And Teotihuacan is part of his African name, which is also known as Tehuti. And Teotihuacan in Mexico really means uh, the city of Tehuti that he built out there. So he left there. And that's why the pyramid complex there mirrors the one Mm. at Giza in Africa. Mm. And Kem, when you refer to Kem is where he went next, Mm -hmm. that's Egypt. That's Egypt. Yeah. So Kem... After uh, Kim fell, after a golden age, they fell. And when it uh, came back, you know, they, the Dogons were overthrown there and they were moved out to Mali, Africa. 
and a new group came in. Uh, and that was probably closer to one of the uh, first dynastic periods that started. And that was still a long, long time ago. But over mm -hmm. time, the name Egypt, which came out of Greece, took hold. And that's the name we call it today. But the original name of the land is Kemet. And so these, these mystery schools started. And so these mystery schools were to teach the spirituality to adept initiates and to pass it down uh, through verbal teachings. And then... When some of these super masters began to pass away or leave or disappear, whatever you want to call it, some of these pyramid priests and temple priests realized the power that this knowledge had and began to alter and remix it. Mm -hmm. They understood the psychology and the neuroscience behind this and how it could control masses of people. So they started to twist the, the, the scripture and twist the words mm. um, and kind of utilize it for darkness instead of light. And then we're able to then put people into a box and put real controls on them and dominate them and secure them, bringing them food, bringing them sacrifices, bringing them money. The sacrifices were not for God. The sacrifices were so they can eat. Oh, <laughs> so uh, they weren't yeah. going to go hunting. Yeah. <laughs> you know right? what I mean? A lamb. Sure. Yeah, exactly. If you go to Egypt, you go to all these temples, you'll find the storehouses where all the sacrifices will be put and salted and stored and, and hung and dried so that these people can have food to eat because they weren't going to go hunting for anything. They weren't going to grow any crops. So it was all a big scam. So religion started with Toth or was that just because he started putting things down on a tablet? Is there, so this was, this was sort of the start of it. Yeah. So they, they took his teachings, his spiritual teachings. He's all mm -hmm. about seeking the light, evading the darkness, understanding how to raise and be born again through conscious thought. The first baptism that was taught is in the animal tablets. He talks about being baptized via elevated consciousness, being able to rise up to another level and look back to see where you were before. And you'll be born again many times in one lifetime if you continue to ascend. It had nothing to do with splashing water and dumping your head in the pool and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, that was also another twist of the of the information. If you look at the Emerald Tablets, so I wrote this book called Compendium of the Emerald Tablets, which has been a bestseller worldwide for four years. Hmm. It's now, I think, currently number one, actually, number one out of three million books in ancient civilizations. Uh, in that book, I put the New Testament where Jesus is speaking, and I put both the Atlanteans words from the Emerald Tablets side hmm. by side. <laughs> and you see that Jesus is literally mimicking what he learned from the ancient mystery schools which he learned directly from the Egyptian mysteries from both the Atlanteans' teachings. So he's not saying anything new in the New Testament. All those words that were spoken by him were information that he was taught because the real text is 36,000 years old. Uh, and of course, we know the Bible was written between 100 AD to 900 AD, long after the people were long gone. Uh, mm. So it's just a mimicking of ancient texts. And people began to take spiritual concepts and a lot of different religions cropped out of his spiritual writings that he wrote in those animal tablets. So have you seen the uh, the documentary movie called Zeitgeist? Yes. Were they basic? It was fascinating. The beginning mm -hmm. is all about basically Jesus and the 12 apostles and dying and reborn three days later and the timing and everything. And and they overlay it into more and more and more ancient times and how it's the yeah. same story over and over again. So yeah. is that the is that an archetypical archetypal thing or is that um, the same consciousness coming back over and over again and doing the same thing? Is that someone learning from the past? Why would that happen? Yeah. So the story kept getting rewritten. The story did happen originally. 
thousands of years before Jesus was even born. And then the story kept getting copied over and over and over. The true story of Jesus has really never truthfully fully been read. The, 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 the Sinai Bible is probably closest to the truth because the Sinai Bible was written before the King James Bible and some of the other canonized books. And there's about 14,000 differences between the two. And one of the biggest discrepancies is Jesus was never crucified. Matter of fact, mm -hmm. Harvard has a copy of the book of Jesus's wife in its seminary library. What? So most likely he got married, had kids, and the Merovingian bloodline most likely is still walking the planet till this very, very day. And so I think that those stories of the ancient, uh, you know, the ancient cultures having that same story over and over again was just it being copied again from culture to culture and being reread and the names being slightly changed, but it happened originally uh, thousands of years prior with oh. Horace. So yeah. did the actual actions happen again, or it's just the story being rewritten over and over again? Just the story being rewritten over and over again with different names uh, to the same exact tale. Yeah, just so, like if you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, you discover mm -hmm. that's the true story of Noah's Ark in the Bible. They copied it from the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's not two separate stories. It's the same exact story being rewritten. So who was Jesus then? What is the story? I believe that Jesus, his real name is Yeshua. First of all, he was a real person that did exist. I've been to the house where he grew up uh, in Egypt, because if you remember in the Bible, Jesus disappears from the Bible at the age of 12. Mm -hmm. Disappears. You don't see him again until he's 32. He's gone. Where does he go? The gospel of the Holy 12, which was left out of the Bible, has the answer. He goes to Egypt. I've been there. If you go to Coptic Cairo, you can go to the house where Jesus and his mother lived in there in, in, in that area. And it's become it's be, they they turned it into like a crypt now. So you can go there, you can, you know, see where the, the bed he slept in and everything. It's still there. Hmm. And um he was learning the Egyptian mysteries. From there, he went all the way up into Tibet to learn Reiki healing and Qigong. And that's been confirmed by the Dalai Lama. And then he left from there and went down into India to learn the mystic arts, teaching reincarnation all the way back to Egypt. And then the Bible picks up, I call my son out of Egypt. And then you see him appear on the back of a donkey in Jerusalem at the age of 32. And that's where the Bible text picks him back up as coming back in. But he was a very spiritual being. He was a virgin birth. And what's interesting is in the Apocrypha text, the text that was kept out of the Bible, you discover his grandmother, Mary's mother, was also a virgin birth. And if you look at the Sumerian tablets, you discover that these virgin births were not unusual they were experimenting in these types of in vitro fertilization techniques where they would take an egg and put it in the womb and take it to term, not their egg, another uh, woman's egg. Um, and they have this whole section in Egypt called uh, the Hathor's Temple at Dendera, where they yeah. have these birthing centers where they were doing yeah, this. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. yeah. The front, the when you walk into Dendera, the first temple on the yes. right um, before exactly. the main temple. And then there's Isis's temple behind that. Yes, that's it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they get that right. At least they said that that was the birthing temple. They got that right. Yeah. I think he's half human, half Atlantean. That's my personal opinion. So if they were placing an egg inside of a woman, it wasn't mm -hmm. hers. Right. Correct. So he was a virgin birth. And so was his, his grandmother was also a virgin birth. They were planted on this timeline for a specific reason by the people who control from behind the scenes, which were these they call themselves the ordainers of destiny in the Sumerian tablets. They control, they believed that they had the right to control destinies on this planet. And they would they would use this crystal tablet to see potential outcomes and futures that they wanted. And they would then 
pick the one they want to coalesce into one real outcome and they would go behind go go ahead putting action behind that to make that reality come true for them masters at manifesting so was this bloodlines then were they yes, were they bloodlines. playing with bloodlines and the yes. inherent skills that these bloodlines or these inherent genetic um advantages that they had was that what they were yes. working with to create a superhuman yeah. you're exactly right they had prior to the flood the anunnaki who are, who are also the atlanteans that's the same people the atlantean is a civilization anunnaki means those who came from heaven to earth so it's like if we travel to mars we wouldn't say i wouldn't say i'm billy carson from boca raton florida i would say i'm an earthling right mm -hmm. so anunnaki yeah. is that generalized term atlantean is the type of civilization they created so and so um basically what you find is that before the flood they didn't even interact with the hominids that were on this planet they didn't interact with us our cousins were here not homo sapiens sapiens but a different version of us was already here then they started tinkering because they wanted to create a slave race of people and then after the flood they decided to utilize this new tinker genetically modified version of a homo sapiens sapien uh and they would they would create leaders of these areas like for example a pharaoh would be and the, the initial pharaohs would be a direct bloodline of one of these Anunnaki people in other words it would be half human and half Anunnaki where the term demigod comes from in Greek and Rome and all of that um and so they would make that liaison that bloodline liaison between them and the people as time continued to go by and and, and cultures and the way that the economics and the civilizations and the kingship and everything changed they began to then for whatever reason handpick specific people to do specific things and they would then create these genetically modified or bloodline people yeshua was one of them um who i believe he was half human and half anunnaki that's just my personal opinion i have not read that anywhere but that's based on what i've researched yep. and what i know from studying ancient cultures i believe that he was not one he well he, he himself said he's not of this world which means he's an alien okay that's the definition <laughs> that's true that's the definition uh and so i believe that he was a chosen one for whatever the full mission was. And I think the real mission was to bring a certain level of Christ consciousness, which existed before Jesus Christ, that terminology ever came to be. Christ consciousness is ancient, it's super ancient. And it's a certain level of consciousness that you, a person can get to this level where they're all knowing, all loving, they're they're the epitome of service to others and unconditional love for, for one another. Uh, you know, a real true ascended being. And Jesus never said he was gonna return. He said the Christ would return. And he's mm -hmm. talking about the consciousness coming back to this planet and raising everyone up to a high level and bringing back a new golden age. It's a level of consciousness where you have this crystallized consciousness where everything that you think of is about how can I become a problem solver? I'm not a victim. How can I help someone? How yeah. can I love this person better? Yeah. How can I solve problems before they happen? Because a genius will solve problems before they happen. So these people were high level thinkers. They'll think into the future and think of what all the outcomes can be and then mm -hmm. create solutions before they even need them. That mm -hmm. kind of level of thinking, uh, how to heal people, not, no suppression of medical technology and information mm -hmm. and stuff like that, creating a true super Christ civilization. It definitely looks like in ancient times, um, Akhenaten and um, Nefertiti, yeah, there's no chance that they're they're like human like we would think. They no. had uh, very androgynous, odd bodies, long yeah. heads, um, mm -hmm. extended skulls. Like they yeah. did they really exist or are yeah. they okay? 
I always wonder that about some of the ancient history of Egypt and Osiris and Isis, and were they sort of energetic representations? Were they are they archetypal to describe a story and a pattern or a consciousness or an energy? Or were these really people? Yeah, they were real people. They actually did live and exist and walk amongst men. They said that they would walk amongst men, but unlike men, which mm -hmm. means that they were something a little different. And uh, when you look at the stories about them, you realize that they were real. They have found the bust of Nefertiti. They found this uh, statue of her full body, which exists. Oh. The head's missing, but the body's there. So you can see the full body. Was it uh, like Akhenaten? Was it an Akhenaten-shaped body where the hips she were had a really lot of She had a lot of curves. <laughs> so did Akhenaten. Yeah, I know. It was weird. It's a weird body. Yeah. And uh, Akhenaten... He really existed because he literally was ousted. So Akhenaten is King Tut's father. Queen Taye and Amonhotep III was uh, King Tut's grandfather and grandmother. Akhenaten, he got in big trouble because when you go to Egypt, if you if you ever notice, all those chipped away gods, all those people are chipped away, all their faces Every are chipped temple. away. That was under the order initially who started that? Akhenaten. So Akhenaten decided, I'm going to become a monotheistic uh, ruler and not, you know, not the kind of believes in multiple gods. And so, hmm. and what got into him was Amun-Ra, who's also Thoth's brother. His brother, his name is Marduk in the Bible, in the Jewish Torah, hmm. but in Egypt, his name is uh, Amun-Ra. He's the one who said, whenever you give thanks, you say amen to me, you give thanks to me. This is why people say amen. They're not saying amen to the creator of the universe. They're actually saying amen to this guy who says a brutal killing ruler, an oh. evil dude who was so jealous, he said- scratch that from my vocab. <laughs> listen, he said, there'll be no other God but me. That was the terminology that made it into the actual biblical text. I'm a jealous God that made it into the biblical text. Why would the creator of the universe be jealous? Why would the creator of the universe demand that other gods, which means there are other gods, I'm surprised mm. he hadn't left that in there, mm. you know, exist. And so this was Amun-Ra talking. You can look him up on the Jewish American Library and all that stuff. His name is all over the place. He's all in there interacting and talking and creating all kinds of issues and problems. And he told Akhenaten that you worship me and you get everyone to worship me and deface all the other gods. So Akhenaten started ordering and decreeing that all these things be chipped away everywhere you go. Chip away the faces, chip away the ears and nose. He told us it was the Romans when I went. Yeah, no, no, no. Akhenaten, going to the super ancient history, you find that Akhenaten, that's why he was kicked out of Egypt. He was kicked out of Egypt, and when he left Egypt, he went to the king, to the Great Pyramid, and he went to that stone box area inside the king's chamber and took yep. the Ark of the Covenant with him. See, Akhenaten is Moses. <laughs> that's the Moses story. He takes that with him. He flees with all his new followers. There were no slaves in Egypt. I'm going to say this again. There were no slaves in Egypt working on pyramids. There were people had their home slaves, but they were nobody building pyramids. We know this for a fact because we have all the work records. We discovered all the broken oh, legs really? and broken arm records. We have all the payroll records, all Come of them. On. Yes, it's all done. We have all, it's all in the museum now. So we have all the information that show these people were paid. They had insurance, they had coverage and all this. We know for a fact that these people were not slaves. The people that were this, this exodus that left out of Egypt, they were the people who converted from believing in multiple gods to believing in the one God religion, monotheism, following Akhenaten. And he fled with all these people out of Egypt with the Ark of the Covenant. And that's why 
the powers that be sent an army after him. They're like, you took the source of our power with, with you. We got to have that. And they fled after him. He never crossed the Red Sea. When you That's a mistranslation in the Bible. He crossed the Sea of Reeds, which is a closer, much smaller sea. And when you do the geological rewind, which we have the computer models simulate now, around that same time frame that this happened, there was a massive earthquake and a tsunami estimated to be in that region, which means it would have sucked all the water out and would have sure. come crashing back. So you see how stories get remixed. What's happened yeah. here was a natural disaster in perfect timing. Uh, but they they then ended up in the desert with the Ark of the Covenant, which is well noted and documented in biblical text. All right. So what was the Ark of the Covenant? A super advanced technological machine. It was multi-purposeful. We know this because uh, of the way that it's designed and what it reads, you know, what it says, what it was capable of doing. It's a weapon, but it also has the capability of being a power source. So it does multiple things. And to handle it, you had to have lead. Okay, you had to have these special kind of boots on because it was a capacitor. And some scientists at several universities experimented with cre recreating the arc using the instructions that are in the Bible. Uh -huh. And it was so powerful, they had to shut it down. What? Yeah. This is anybody can Google this. This is like it was mainstream news about maybe 15 years ago. They've done this already. They reproduced it and it actually turned on. What did the cherubs do? What did the angels, the cherubs do? What were the they? The cherubims at the top pointing each other? Electricity, yes, exactly. A big spark. When you look up the video on YouTube, you see a big spark jumping across an arc. That's the arc. That's why they call it the arc. It's the arc, which is the, elect you know, the electromagnetic arc. It jumps from one cherubim to the next. <laughs> I've also heard that incense and, and, and the smoke from it was used to be able to see the energy, be able to see like the electricity and the energy working, that it was part of its, the a way to, and that's kind of where some of the incense became ceremonial. It's like when you see a laser show, they have to put that mist out there. It's the same yes, like thing. light the air. Yes, exactly. Same, same exact thing. That's exactly what they did. I also so heard there not, were more than one arc too. There wasn't There's more than arc. one arc. That is correct. There's more than one arc. There was more than one arc. Um, they've all been taken now, so nobody knows where they are. The last one that we knew of was in Ethiopia yeah. at an Ethiopian church. Yeah. And a guy discovered it there about seven or eight years ago, and he went public with it. And then within a year, it was stolen from there because there was no military, no, no police, no security, just some temple and uh, church priests, you know, guarding it. So they took it very easily. And that was the last one known of that was publicly available. The rest are probably in some type of a military bunker. I think Graham Hancock did a pretty deep dive on the Ark and they, the, anybody that interacted with the Ark would essentially not want the job because they would die. Yeah, they would die there. They would get what looked like radiation sickness. Their eyes right. would start bleeding. Their nose would start bleeding. Their nails would fall off. Their skin would boil. Their hair would fall out. That sounds like radiation sickness. So what did they use it for in ancient times where it was productive. The Great Pyramid itself is a power generator. That's yeah. one of the purposes. Just That's just one. It was a multifunctional stone computer also, but just for the purposes of this, it was built on top of an aquifer. And the Nile used to run very close to the pyramids on Giza. Now it's way meandered, way, it way off. It used to go up the time, all the temples. All the temples have their ramps. And you can see that it doesn't look like normal steps. Like the water was right up to like all the temples, right? Exactly. Right mm -hmm. up to them. And the water running underneath the Great Pyramid 
would run underneath in that aquifer, and that moving water would then run right underneath the uh, solid granite, magnetized granite uh, that was there, crystal granite. Now, mm. when you have running water against magnetized crystal granite, which is the base there, it creates physiostatic electricity. Those ions would get pushed up into the uh, Grand Gallery, and they had used to have resonating rods in the slots going up the Grand Gallery. When it got to the King's Chamber, some other type of you know fusion would happen, and it would then send the energy up through the apex, and the apex, which is now missing, would then transmit it out wirelessly to the obelisk, which then, which then collect this ambient electricity. And if you had a jet, you can pick up this ambient wireless electricity. You can see the jet connected to light bulbs and so forth, like a Nandera. The one, the jet has the three or four bars on it. Exactly. And so Nikola Tesla copied that same energy power technique with the Wardenclyffe Tower. And so what, at, when the water shifted away, began to meander away, and I think it really happened after the last pyramid war, it broke the stone computer. It broke the stone uh, power generator. And so what they realized was we can take this arc and we could put it in this, they made this makeshift granite box, which is not a sarcophagus because I can't even fit in. I'm six foot four. I can't <laughs> lay yeah. it. I fit just <laughs> fine. I was totally <laughs> okay. fine. My my toning inside of the yeah. box felt sounded great. Nice. Um, but it, it's yeah. definitely not big enough to be yeah, a sarcophagus. To, to when you've my... seen the real ones, they're giant. They're, they're massive. I had to bend yeah. my knees. Yeah. So I knew it wasn't a sarcophagus, but it's the same exact. I measured it. It's the same exact dimensions as what? The Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. identical dimensions, which means it fit right in that box. And so if you don't have the water, you need something else to arc the power, perfect location to put it in the king's chamber to send the energy through the apex so they can keep the wireless wireless energy going. So energy. Akhenaten, energy. Yeah. So when Akhenaten took that, he took the power source for Egypt. Sends you right back in time if you don't have power. And exactly. also no one would want that right now because institutions would lose billions of dollars because you would be allowing free energy. Free energy puts everyone on the equal playing field. You know, no more third world country. If you got energy and water, everybody's equal and they don't want that. They want to keep the boot on the necks of the people and control and hoard the power in one region so they can dominate the rest of the planet. What do yeah. you believe the temples were used for? Temples had a couple of different purposes. One, they're built on top of these uh, extreme magnetic fields. And so in some way, they would harness those magnetic fields for some type of energy purposes. In some way, they were utilizing this energy for like the fountain of youth. They would utilize it to mm. for, for anti-aging techniques, anti-aging yeah. anti methods. Also, there's a couple of temples that people, sick people would be allowed to go into. Right. They would walk between these two magnetized granite plates and it would heal them. For the Anunnaki Atlantean people or the pharaohs, it was anti-aging. They've done experiments inside of some of these temples and some of these similar magnetic fields where plants grow twice as fast and are more abundant. Uh, and so, you know, they were they were built. Plus, also the design of them had ancient secrets and mysteries encoded into the actual construction technique right. that was yeah. left behind for people to read. People who knew the brick masons and so forth, they get information from these structures and buildings in as the well. pattern of the building of the temple, like yes. how the rooms were organized, how you'd walk <laughs> through it. Yeah. Right, exactly. I ended up getting a feeling when I was there that um, it felt like where they used to practice magic, what we would call magic now. They used to. Pr it felt like something somewhere they used to practice those things, do everything from change the weather to heal people. See, they understood something. So the English language, which has now dominated the entire planet, that's not an accident. 
the English the English language is, is the weakest language. And what I mean by that, words have power. Words can literally affect and change the ether of space-time itself. And the further back you go in time, the closer you get to the language of light, which is what the ancient Kemetic people and Egyptians would speak back in ancient times, those words had supreme power over, over reality itself. And, um, and so, you know, just speaking certain ways and saying th certain things can control different outcomes. Because we know cymatic frequencies, which are created by our vocal cords, they emanate out of you. We think they're just words, but they're actually codes that the universe picks up, programming codes. And then the universe then enacts those codes. That's how a lot of things happen. And so it's um it's a way of you know creating different realities, and it's the power of the voice and the power of speaking. And so you know coming into English, which is now dominate dominated the whole planet, we have one of the weakest forces that we can speak. It's easy to understand, it's easy to pick up, mm. but it has the least power over the space time energy. I want to talk about DNA, but I feel like I want to talk about where we came from, Anunnaki what we are made of, like what makes us up, like what makes us humans. So going back then, it's really generally like what is the extraterrestrial's role in the civilization? So where did it begin from your knowledge? Well, if you look at these ancient Sumerian tablets, uh, a special tablet, there's two actually real good ones, the Epic of Atrahasis, and the Enuma Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation. Those are two separate writings that are so profound because they talk about not only our solar system, but the actual creation of our solar system. They talk about the creation of Earth itself. That information from the Enuma Elish got copied into the modern day Bible, but only a small amount of it. The full story is in the Enuma Elish. You discover that a very long time ago, there was another planet named Tiamat, this planet was actually the fourth planet. Mars was a habitable moon of that planet. Mm. This planet was four to six times larger than Earth, a water-bearing planet with land and life. And supposedly, it's when the sun reflected off of it, it was so beautiful, it would rival the sun's glory. That's how beautiful this planet was. Now, in this process of the formation of our solar system, there were a lot of different rogue planets uh, and, and moons that were out of sorts. and uh, on this one orbit, this one collided with Tiamat and mm. broke it into pieces. Now, a giant piece swung away and recoalesced with all the water, organic life. It used to have living people on it. It recoalesced and moved into the third position. It tugged along with it, Lamu, which is the moon, and became the Earth. And the rest of it broke up into giant chunks and became the asteroid belt. And then it slung Mars into this weird elliptical orbit around the sun. And computer models by NASA and the European Space Agency confirmed this, that Mars used to orbit another planet that's now missing, and which is why it has such a weird orbit. And when you look at Mars, one side is charred, the other side is smooth, and which is crazy. So it means that the side that's charred is the side that took the brunt of the hit from the exploding pieces of Tiamat. And also Mars's equator is not perfectly straight. It's been shifted about 45 degrees, which means the mass that hit it tugged on the crust and shifted it about 45 degrees. So that's the evidence. That's the circumstantial evidence we have of this planet, uh, the asteroid belt and, uh, and, the, and the shape that Mars is in right now. Uh, and so these um, people came from another planet that was orbiting our sun. 
They were on a planet named Nibiru, according to the Enuma Elish. And they came from Nibiru to Earth. They went through the Hammond Bracelet, which is the asteroid belt. They got down to Earth, and then uh, one of them did, and decided, wow, this is incredible. I finally found the gold that we need. I found the resources that we need. We can create a breakaway civilization here. All the resources are here to start over again or start a fresh civilization. And so he used this thing called a crystal tablet, which is crazy, to communicate back with his planet and let them know that he has found the place to create a new civilization. And shortly after, this pantheon, they call it a pantheon. So pantheon did not originate in Greece and all that. It originated in the ancient Sumerian tablets. This pantheon of these beings came and they started showing up a little bit at a time. And they began to survey the land and begin to build a new breakaway civilization. And they brought these EGG with them. This is about 450,000 years ago, according to the tablets. They worked and mined the land and create structures and cities and everything else without us. We were already here, but we weren't, we weren't working for them. We weren't the slaves yet. We were just hunter-gatherers or whatever we were out here doing our thing. For 200,000 years, they put the EGG. The EGG, according to these tablets, were the working class people. But they worked for 200,000 years, and they got tired of working, according to the tablets. So we, they were so pissed off. They were so angry. The conditions were harsh. They felt like they were being converted into slaves. And so they had a coup, and they decided to go against the kings of Earth. So there were a lot of them were working on Mars, and they were building structures and stuff on Mars. This is why there's anomalies on Mars that match stuff on oh. Earth. Oh. They, they went from Mars to Earth to have a war. And these are the sons of God that fell from heaven. They came down because God, who uh, not the God of the Creator, but the God of these Anunnaki people was Anu, the father of Enki and Enlil, the uncle of Thoth and Marduk, yep. Amun-Ra. Mm. And they encircled their camp in uh, a place called Adam's Calendar in South Africa. They found this location. This location is a tourist attraction now. It's the very first gold mine ever discovered. They can date oh. it all the way back to that time frame. Because the so Anunnaki needed real. gold, right? Exactly. They needed gold, amongst other things. Mm -hmm. I don't think they were shipping it back to their home planet like Zachariah Sitchin was saying, but they were utilizing gold. Gold is a technological element. You need it for everything, sure. right? Sure. We couldn't have any... I couldn't talk to you right now without, this, without gold inside this mic and this computer circuit board and everything else. And so... It's the foundation of a high-level civilization. Um, and mm -hmm. so they decided, Enki says, I have an idea to stop this war. There's an existing being on this planet. We can add our, add our essence to it and have mm -hmm. it bear the load. In other words, we can genetically modify it, make it more, um, make it understand what we're saying, make it, make it, uh, you know, make it less volatile or, or, or whatever, uh, domesticate it, and then we can make it do the work that you guys are doing. You guys can take off now. And it was agreed upon in the tablets. So they started this project of capturing hominids and tinkering with their DNA. And they started off with this cloning system at first. But the problem was they couldn't mate. When they would mate, they weren't having babies. Just like if you made mm -hmm. a tiger and a lion, you have a tigon, but you don't have babies, right? So they were like, man, what are we going to do here? This is crazy. It's too much work to have to keep making these slaves. And we don't want to go back to war against these people. So ISIS says, I have an idea. ISIS? I ISIS. ISIS says, I, I have an idea. She was part of the story. Yes. <laughs> she says, I'm going to take an egg from one of the women. And they took the egg and they That's cleaned up some of the... she's represented by the egg. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, keep going. That's okay. This is on Sumerian tablet. She took the egg, 
and she cleaned out some of the genetic material or whatever they did. They made a zygote. They added some of their essence to the egg. They say essence. I think that's genetic modification in my understanding. They took this zygote, which is what you call in modern science. They put it in her womb. She took it to term 10 months, not nine, 10 months. And then you see her in this famous cylinder scroll holding up this baby saying, my hands have created it. She gave birth to the Adamu, which means first man. So it's not the first human being that ever existed. It's the first successful homo sapien sapien that now should be able to reproduce on its own. Because Isis supposedly had sex and a baby from um, putting back together the body of Osiris. Osiris. Right. Which, of course, didn't happen. There's obviously no. symbolic. It's symbolic. to So yeah. that freaking connects that dot. Right, right. Exactly what happened. And so... They raised Adam. And he and was then, missing his penis, right? Wasn't it? I think Osiris yes. was missing Os his Osiris, she, she, he was missing his penis, correct. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, and they, 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 so they put Adam in this Eden, E-D-I-N, uh -huh. and the Lord of Eden, or she was a Satan, was the name. The guy who ruled over Eden was Satan, the Lord of Eden in the tablets. Okay. And that was actually Enlil. And the Bible calls him Yahweh. They think he's God. That guy's just masquerading as God. It was never God. And this Eden was this laboratory where they would have these mating rituals between the different peoples. And they got when they got Adam in there, they tried to mate him with these other ones. Wasn't working out. So they said, okay, let's take some DNA from him. Let's make another one of him. They made Eve. Then they mated them and bingo, it worked. So they didn't make 8 billion people from two. They made more Adams and more Eves and made more Adams and more Eves through the general process of, of, you know, getting pregnant and birthing. And so they created this genetic diversity so that they can then create and multiply. Who people can't create 8 billion? I did the mathematics last night. I actually talked about this on a podcast last night. For, for there to be 8 billion people on Earth and the Earth only be, you know, according to Christians, 6,000 years ago is when all this started. You'd have to have, on the first day they had sex, it'd have to be 1.3 million people born that day, and every single day thereafter until today to have 8 billion people. Oh, yeah, that's just not didn't possible. didn't happen. <laughs> didn't happen. And so they created this diversity of pool of genetics, and then they kept cross-mating in a way, which is why they had such strict rules on mating and when you can mate and who you can mate with to prevent inbreeding. This was a great story in these tablets. Wow. And that's how they began to create the diversity that, that puts out the Homo sapiens sapien. Um, crazy story. That was about 200,000 years ago. They also genetically modified us by taking chromosome number two out of our body, fusing it together and put, putting telomere caps on each end to limit our lifespans. And scientists now, geneticists at universities, they teach this. They say, we don't know how this happened. It's an artificial mutation that would have taken millions of years to happen, but it happened about 200,000 years ago. So the tablets line up with modern science once again. And, and they our say lifespans, we can live about 120 years, right? Isn't that the cap? Isn't that the telomere cap sort of prediction is that it's you have 120 yes. years to live if you live that's well? That's it. That is absolutely right. Our and that's about all people lifespan. live to. We, we're making it to 80 if we're lucky now because of all the toxins and poisons. If it wasn't for that, we'd make it to 120. So what's up with the junk DNA? Oh, yeah. So the junk DNA is not junk. It's they call it junk, but it's just disconnected nodes. So our ancestors, our cousins who were here already on this planet, in my opinion, after researching them, they were more advanced than us, not technologically, but spiritually. The bones have been left behind. We found the skulls. We found the bones, bigger, bigger skulls, bigger bones, bigger brain capacity, not smaller, but larger brain capacity. They probably had larger pineal glands. They probably had more DNA connected, which gave them the capability of 
different uh, imbued sensory perception like telekinesis maybe or silent communi you know, communication, understanding how to sense the magnetic field of the earth. Right now we have billions of magnetite crystals in our heads and we can't sense the earth's magnetic field. We can't navigate via magnetism, but they could back then. Inside of the pineal gland is crystals. It's crystalline, crystalline structure, right? It's a crystalline structure that uh, when you put the right amount of pressure, it will spark. You can have a kundalini awakening, you know, but a lot of that has been lost and forgotten about as we become technological babies and we rely everything for, on everything external. We don't go to our internal technology to use it anymore. Can we activate it? Oh, yeah, you can definitely activate the, um, you know, the, breath, the best way to activate your pineal gland. First of all, is to detox it, getting away from fluorides and toxins and processed foods and and eating clean. Um, and then, of course, through meditation, but also through a special type of meditation called breathwork meditation. Mm -hmm. Breathwork meditation for two to three hours will create this scenario in the brain where the brain thinks you're getting near death when you do the breathwork technique. Oh, and boy. then it forces the pineal gland to, to pressure up and squeeze and release more DMT. You can have a psychedelic experience without going to the jungle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and without throwing up or... <laughs> Right. Purging, sorry. <laughs> or somebody robbing you or abducting you and taking your organs out. You know, all kind of crazy stuff happens when people go to get the, the, these uh, these substances. They don't know what they're getting into. What are we as a human body? Well, the human body is an avatar, just like the movie Avatar. It's a receptor. It receives and holds the spirit temporally. And so the avatar body is set up in a way where it's, it's, it's a biological robot and machine imbued with sophisticated technologies and advanced capabilities that we are right now not fully tapped into. Some people have better gifts and energy than others, and mm -hmm. some haven't accessed any of it. Mm -hmm. But the way the body is set up, we have a couple things that hold your spirit in your body. Lock that frequency in. One is the neural correlates of consciousness. Those are three giant neurons that wrap around the inside of the skull. And when you look at them on a scan, it looks like a crown of thorns. Oh, my You've God. You've heard that story before, right? <laughs> so it's a, as a metaphor, Jesus with the crown of thorns is Christ consciousness. It has nothing to do with him putting on a real crown of thorns. It's the one that's inside of every single human being's head right now. But that works in collaboration with the magnetite crystal and your colostrum and your neocortex, those things all work together to combine to allow a frequency to be encapsulated and be hosted inside the physical avatar body. So it's the ghost, you become the ghost in the shell and you animate this shell via that spirit that's being housed and it's only being locked in because of those four things I just mentioned. We have a tremendous amount of power within us too. I've always been so fascinated with just how much power the body can produce and <laughs> which is like uh, how many trillion volts? It's like insane. 2.3, 2.63 trillion volts of electricity. Each cell has 0 0.07 volts of electricity in the human, you know, each, each cell. And you add up the amount of cells, it becomes trillions of volts of electricity. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy how much power we have inside of us and that's the secret in, in Reiki and Qigong. It's understanding how to move the energy from those cells and channel it through the body for the purpose of healing and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the things that Yeshua, a.k.a. Jesus, became a master at. Did you ever um, read the Magdalene Manuscript with, uh, with um, the story from Mary Magdalene and how they used sex to uh, strengthen his ka body, the etheric field, the second body? Yeah, 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 I read that stuff. Yeah, would that yeah. be part of that 
part of strengthening his body energetically, moving energy. It's pretty interesting because you talk about recycling the kundalini. Mm-hmm. There's special techniques that even men can do where you can uh, actually uh, not ejaculate. You can actually ejaculate, but not not release the semen and then recircle the energy back in through the kundalini again. There's all these different type of tantra techniques. Um, and so according to ancient sages and wisdom keepers, it's real and it actually works. You know, it's mm-hmm. a technique that can be learned and actually perfected. Hmm. That's pretty interesting stuff. Wow. So then what's the yeah. role of the brain? The brain is just a, like a microchip, you know, it's a microprocessor. It's a, you know, it's a central processing unit. It allows you to be able to, to connect to multiple dimensions. And so if you look back to some of my oldest videos, maybe eight, 10 years ago, I was talking about the fact that the universe is 11 dimensions and the brain can tap into all those higher dimensions. And people used to laugh at me, tell me I was crazy and you're making all this stuff up. Just last year, in 2022, scientists at the Brain Institute discovered that the brain now connects to 11 dimensions. And that the universe, where I got the concept of 11 dimensions of the universe, first was from theoretical physicists like Michio Kaku, saying that the universe is 11 dimensions or it would collapse. When I looked into it, many other people collaborated and became peer-reviewed science. So then I hypothesize that the brain is connecting to those 11 as well because we are multidimensional beings and those are the, the dimensions we're connecting with on a moment by moment basis. And we have the capability of tapping into higher knowledge and higher dimensions. And then to, uh, 2022, it finally comes out, they discovered it's actually real and that the brain is, is a multidimensional functional computer. It's a processor. It allows us to tap in and inhabit and incorporate spiritual energy and also what we call physical third dimensional um, you know, uh, feelings and energy. So it combines the spiritual and the physical mm-hmm. together in one place. How can we in, have more awareness for those dimensions? The best thing to do is get into what I call a Merkaba meditation. Merkaba, <laughs> three words, actually sounds like one. But it's an ancient meditation technique. I actually teach this, uh, and I do a, a guided meditation on, on my TV network. It, you you actually end up going through this meditation where you step into your vehicle of ascension, which is what the Merkaba is. Mm-hmm. It's this star tetrahedron that's counterclockwise spinning, mm-hmm. and you actually can get inside of it and take it to higher dimensions. You can travel to dimensions through the Merkaba. It's even talked about in the Emerald Tablets. Thoth talks about traveling to these higher dimensions as well via the same exact technique. Could this be also then used as time travel? Because like, when I think about time travel, I think we think we want to take our body and go somewhere else. But look, like I feel like I you time travel at night when you go to sleep. You time travel when you do certain, you know, modalities and techniques like breathing or EMDR or something like that. You can revisit the past. And so, like, in your opinion, what is what would time travel actually look like? And are we actually already doing it? There's a couple ways to do it. If you want to look at the non-physical movement of it, it can be done through the mind. We know that through remote viewing, through other uh, mind techniques and thought experiments that the the mind can travel backwards and forwards in time to collect information. Mm-hmm. The mind can even be sent to different locations to connect, collect data and intel, which the U.S. military actually had a pro. The CIA had a military program for, it's called mm-hmm. Project Stargate, for mm-hmm. that one purpose, sending minds outside of space and time to gather intel against foreign enemy and stuff like that. So we know that's a real program that actually existed and it's 100% possible. The other way is through these different types of meditations, you can create the same situation or scenario 
with those talks about utilizing it to go through these gates, the gates of heaven. He says the gates of heaven is not what people think. It's these stargates that take you to other dimensions and locations. And at these higher dimensions, the past, present, and future exist at the same time. It would be like me looking down at myself from a higher dimension. That would be like looking at myself in a house, in the house I'm in now. From a higher dimension, I can see myself in every single room in this house, but at a different stage in my life. Mm. And I'm witnessing it all at once. Okay, so that's another form of time travel. And then in the physical way, we time travel all the time. If you hop on a plane, if you get into a rocket and go into space, if you drive a race car, <laughs> anyone that's moving away at a specific speed relative to somebody standing still is moving forward. Uh, uh, you're moving forward in time, just ever so slightly, tiny, yeah. tiny plonk units of a moment, but right. they're measurable. Yeah, measurable. Going backwards in time is also possible, but that would require the capability of moving percentages, higher percentages of the speed of light, because that would then would allow you to go backward in time. The problem of going backward in time, you have the grandfather paradox. And so if I go, go back and kill my grandfather, how was I born to go back in time? I solved that paradox by saying and hypothesizing that if I travel back in time, the reason why I can kill my grandfather and still have gone back to do it is because I'm now on an alternative timeline. Sure. I don't think you can go back in time on the same timeline. You shift into an alternate universe. If you go forward, you can stay on your same timeline. If you go backward, you shift into an alternate timeline. That's my personal hypothesis. I love to go into the thought around quantum entanglement and how it's possible to affect an atom at one side of the universe to the other instantaneously. So quantum entanglement, it's a- It's, it's a, amazing. It's a, quantum entanglement first came to me when I was just doing a walking meditation. It came to me as parabolic down conversion. And so I go and look it up. A lot of my information comes to me like that. And then I go research it and find out it's actually real. That. Yeah. It's totally. the craziest it's, thing. It's coming from the field. You're getting it from the field. And then you, I find that with so many brilliant people that are doing this total esoteric knowledge research yeah. is that you actually back into it. You're like, you have an epiphany, you think something, mm -hmm. and then you figure it out. So exactly. That's exactly how it happens. So I'm like parabolic down conversion. So I go look it up. It's the, it's the method used to take two particles and phase shift them on the same frequency so that you can quantum entangle the particles. Then you can take one particle and shift it to the other end of the universe if you can get there. And when you change the particle local to you, the other one will change instantaneously. In other words, if one is in a spin rate up, the other one will go spin right down. When you twist this one and put it down, this one will go up and vice versa. So you can create this up-down communication between two entangled particles. It goes even further than that. Scientists now discovered that you can quantum entangle through conscious thought. And they've actually entangled people's thoughts together now. They took one person and put him in front of a video game screen, put another person that was, I think, in two laboratories away. He had the remote control. The guy in front of the screen was blindfolded. The guy who was two laboratories away was looking at the screen, but the one that was blindfolded had the remote control, I mean. So the one that was looking was controlling the hand of the one that was blindfolded to play the mm -hmm. game. So they entangled two minds already. Real science. So we know that when we get an epiphany like that, there's very rarely an original thought. A lot of the times we get in sync with a thought that already exists. Because we know that all thoughts are light waves. So every single thought you're thinking right now, and I'm thinking right now, it generates waves that leave our skull and go out into the ether permanently, forever. 
And so that's why the Akashic Records is real. That's why the Book of Life is real, because everyone's conscious thoughts are all around us, floating around us in this ether we call the grid. And it's all this, every, everything everywhere is all connected. And so you can get in sync with something and you can download it. And if you can discern that download, you can have an epiphany moment. And so quantum entanglement is so incredible because if you really understand where we're going to go in the future with communications, it's going to be quantum entangled communications. So right now, if you travel from Earth to the rings of Saturn on a vacation, it takes you three months to get, you know, send a message back and to get the message, you know, get the message to Earth and get the message back to the spaceship. So if there's a problem, you really got a real problem because nobody's coming to help you. But if you have a quantum entangled communications device on Earth and you take one with you in the ship or you have a communications array that's been launched years ahead into deep space, you can communicate with you can communicate with the array or your quantum entangled communications device. You can instantaneously send a response and get a response back. And so that's where the future is going to go with this quantum entanglement. But as far as humans go, understanding that all thoughts and ideas and concepts most likely are downloaded from the field. Very few original thoughts. I think that almost everything that can be thought of has already been thought and exists in this soup. You know, just like an alien race uh, two light years away can pick up I Love Lucy from 1960 because that radio wave, which is a wave of light, can be picked up and decoded and you can watch I Love Lucy from 1960. So what's the mechanism that connects it, though? And this is where I get a little spun out. And I've heard from a physicist that inside of each and every one of us is a black hole. And then I start to think that maybe we're this, it's, it gives me like this pathway to a loop where everything, you are the universe, like you hold all the frequencies and patterns. So there's just yeah. this sort of like infinite looping that's happening within you, but also in the universe, because it's one in the same through possibly like black holes or something. Is that it's even? Through it's through fractals. Right, See, right. We're, we're, a fractal, we're a fractal of the whole. And in a fractal, if you look at a hologram, if you go to the smallest piece of a hologram, you'll find the whole image in the smallest piece. The only thing you lose is resolution. And we're living in a fractal holographic matrix. That's what we're actually living in. And this whole thing is one giant energetic grid. And the thing about it is distance is an illusion. The distance between where I am now in Florida and wherever you are right now in the world is actually, it doesn't even exist. We're still all, we're local in the same location. We're still connected in the same location. Individuality, separation, all illusions doesn't exist. There's only one entity and one consciousness providing this third dimension with the illusion of separation. And quantum entanglement, uh, and the way that an avatar body is set up, like from thoughts, for example, if you look at our, our, uh, our mind, and you, then you also look at Einstein's theory of relativity, if you take a planet, in space, it warps space around it. And that warped space allows things to fall toward the planet. That's right. the warped gravity, right, effect. Mm -hmm. Our conscious thoughts warp the ether of space-time and create this well. And that's how the law of attraction where things fall toward us based on what we're warping, what we're focusing on, the energy field that we're using to warp, that's what begins to fall towards us. Your thought is what is being warped towards it, which is why you have to be careful what you think of. Exactly. Exactly. So we're creating our own gravity wells and we have our we're creating this situation where, um, you know, we are entangling with information based on frequencies and whatever that and whatever that frequency we're on when we're thinking, that's the warp space that's now sending back low frequency things. Or if it's you're in high frequency warp space, it's sending back high frequency things. 
you're entangled with things in the universe based on the frequency you're at. So one of my greatest questions is, well, these are such deep rabbit holes. And someone like my dad would be like, why are you looking into stuff that you can't prove? I'm like, well, you got to ask the question. If we can get closer to the answer, then I feel like I'll know how to live this life better. I'll know how to play this game better. So what does all that teach us about how to best play this game of life and be as happy and joyful as possible? Yeah, great question. Because that's really what's on everybody's minds. Like, right. how do I play in the matrix here? Like, what am right. I supposed to do? And when I began to realize that I was on a data collection mission and my mission was to not only collect the information, but to figure out a way that I'm supposed to bring heaven to earth. I'm not supposed to wait to die so that I can live. I'm supposed to live now in this mm -hmm. realm. And then when I, when my corporeal body releases my spirit energy, I'm going to live again and again. And, and every ascension process, my mission is to achieve the highest, most best lifestyle, living entity, energy, help, love, expressions, uh, artistic creation that I possibly can in every single dimension. And I think that for me, that's the understanding I got. And so when I when I figured that out, when I had that epiphany, I said, wow, my job here is to how many people can I help? How can I assist others? How can I learn how to walk in abundance? How can I be true to myself? How can I be the, be the best that I can be? And also, how can I stop and smell the roses and be blessed and enjoy my blessings and thank be thankful for every single thing that I get my hands on, everything that comes to me? How can I truly be heartfully grateful for it? I learn my lessons. When something happens and goes wrong or I make a mistake, do I continue to make that same mistake or do I learn from that and become better and better and better? And that begins to process and the step-by-step -step process for ascension. And that will ride me out of this realm and out of this, out of this dimension into the next one. So I can continue to build on that and become better and better and better. So it's to progress through the dimensions? Yeah. See, the third dimension is a proving ground. It's a testing ground. It's an area, a place for you to come uh, as an inexperienced soul and begin to learn and make mistakes and grow and see what you can do. And also a certain level of suffering. And then when you begin to master this dimension, I think that people who don't master it keep coming back over and over and over again. I think you can get to a point, according to Thoth and the Emerald Tablets, that you actually can then begin to incarnate at will, he says, where mm. you can you can incarnate on and in the plane that you desire. So plane means dimension. So he's saying that you can get so good at this game that you can actually come back in any dimension you want or any location you want, any time frame you want, past or present or future. Let's talk about like perhaps the more nefarious evil forces here that hold us back from that reality yeah um what would they be both calls them the dark brothers in the emerald tablets he says the dark brothers and behold of the dark brothers they they're behind the scenes pulling all the strings controlling the world controlling the people from behind the scenes in the darkness which is exactly what we have we have 100 families operating behind the scenes controlling 8 billion people and what he warns is that it's really our fault that this happens and this has happened he's absolutely right if you understand what's going on on this planet and the control and the boot that's on our neck right now, we have been in complete collusion with that happening to us. We have allowed it to happen because there's no we way eight people we participate. Participation is our collusion. It's our approval to continue to accept what's being done to us. Hmm. And what they've done is something brilliant, divide and conquer. They've got us divided, which has conquered us. They've got the political system, left wing, right wing. You got the races, black, white, red, yellow, green, blue, whatever. 
You got all these things. You got the different kind of churches. You're Protestant. I'm Catholic. No, I'm Baptist. All this is separation, right? And so with the separation tactics, what's happened is we can't see the smoke that they're blowing up our butt. We have to realize, look, we got to come together. We need to organize. We need to stop playing this game. There's only one way to stop this cabal from operating on this planet, and that's for all of us to come together and do one thing. Just stop playing the game. And when we, when we do that, we will then create a new economic system. We'll create a new structure uh, for leadership in this country or all the world, actually. And we could re release suppressed technologies and create an abundant civilization on this planet because there's more than enough for 20 billion people to live here and thrive. Uh, right. then, you know, we have 8 billion people here, but 90% of those people are suffering. So we can create a civilization that would be like an oasis in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy, but it's up to us to learn and develop uh, and work past this divide and conquer stuff and understand that we're all brothers and sisters and that we're supposed to work together and love one another and help one another and not allow these global elitists to destroy us and pin us against each other. When there's a war being called, they're never on the front line. It's always us. <laughs> you know, if we if you want to go to war, then there should be a, a law. Any any politician or ruler that calls a law a, a war. Yeah, they should be the first one. Them, them and their families go first. You guys, you guys go first and then let us know what happens when the front line's down. Then we'll come out next. There'll never be a war again. <laughs> so is it extraterrestrials? Is it, I mean, there's always the talk about reptilians. Is there extraterrestrial? Just are they working through our consciousness? Um, I mean, shoot, I even heard an old story, a story from uh, someone I interviewed, Elizabeth April, saying that the Anunnaki and the reptilians were here and that the Galactic Federation said, you guys got to go. And the Anunnaki were like, peace, see ya. And this was in Egypt. Um, and the reptilians were like, no, 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 we don't want to leave. And they're like, fine, but you can't be seen by the, you can't be seen by the humans. And so they went underground and then they started going through our consciousness to control us and that they essentially still run the world, but we just don't see them. Some of it comes out of the Nag Hammadi scripts. So they believed in this reptilian type of a race that was in this phase shifted reality that can actually um, dominate mankind from this behind the veil type mechanism. Mm -hmm. uh, they also have another one that kind of looks like an embryonic a person, but it's embryonic. It looks like a gray alien, kind of weird stuff in these Nag Hammadi scripts. And it talks about these kind of beings. There's also been crypts in places underground, even in the Americas where they found remnants of what seemed to be this ancient reptilian race. And of course, you know, in Sumeria, they found the Ubaid culture with thousands of statuettes of these reptilian people. So there could be some truth to that. There could be some actual truth to that. In terms of who's running the world right now, I believe there's still people who are in direct bloodline with the Sumerian Kings list. The Sumerian mm -hmm. Kings list, which is located at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, England, has a list of kings that rule for hundreds of thousands of years and these kings were not humans. They were these Anunnaki people. Some ruled for 14,400, one ruled for 28,000, another one ruled for 7,800 years. And these ruling periods are like mind-blowing time frame. I had to go there in person to witness it and look at it with my own eyes, which I did. And um, there are people who believe they're the, they're the direct descendants of these beings and that they have the right to rule over human beings still to this very day. And so I think a lot of those are these families behind the scenes that are ruling. They could have more of a direct bloodline to these alien people. How do we overcome that other than what's what's the steps? I understand that we can't participate anymore, but 
what are the steps? Like what would, what would we do next? Well, the steps are what you're doing a podcast like this, the work that I do and many others around the world that are trying to help awaken mankind from various different aspects, podcasts, TV shows, productions, you know, internet influencers, books, you know, and everything else we got going on. It's all this edutainment that we're putting out to try to enlighten and awaken people to find out who they truly are first. And once you find out who you are, then you can begin to re reach out and realize, wow, everyone is me. I got to help as many people as I can. That's the process. Is we're just in the beginning process of the global mass awakening. Right. And eventually we will come to a point where people will realize who we truly are and what we're supposed to do here. And we will take back control of this planet because no empire can persist forever. I've never seen, I've read over a thousand books, scriptures, cylinder scrolls, papyruses. I've been all around the world to all kinds of indigenous ancient cultures. Nowhere has it ever been written that uh, one, one empire is going to rule for all eternity, not one place. And so I think that we're in a situation where there's this cycle with circular mm -hmm. civilizations that rise and fall of civilizations, and that at some point we will rise back into a golden age and take back control of this planet. We're mm -hmm. in the process of it right now. What was the last golden age? The last golden age was approximately 27,000 years ago. Isn't that a, isn't there a cycle about a 26,000 year cycle or something like that? Yes, the Yuga, the Kali Yuga cycle. Now there are many golden ages in between, but it's not global. Like Egypt has had a couple of golden ages within the past 10,000 years, but it's just an isolated area. Mm. And so but a global a pure global wide uh golden age Every 26 to 27,000 years, you'll see this cycle of rise and fall. Right now, I think we're in the Tetra Yuga. So if you're going around the Yuga cycle, the this side, the, the side on the right is like the, you know, going back into the bronze and starting all over again. I think we're beyond that. We're in the side over here in this lower left corner, rising back up towards a golden age. We're in the beginnings of the Tetra Yuga as we're heading into the age of Aquarius. Do just humans keep coming back over and over again? And there's extinctions that happen and... We start over and we just have to kind of rebuild. Is that essentially what happens? And in your research, is there a certain point in which that happens? Is it always following the golden age? Is it when does that happen within this very pattern oriented fractal nature of this reality? Right. There's a lot of uh, collapses that have happened via geological disasters. You know, and that's a part of another cycle that we're in as well. There's a couple of them. One would be, forget asteroids and comets, let's talk about the planet itself. We know sure. that the planet goes through these, these pole shifts, right? And we're overdue for another pole shift right now. The pole shift of the crust of the Earth itself. So the crust, the physical crust, they're all together on these tectonic plate lines. Mm -hmm. And sometimes mm -hmm. they slip. And when they slip, a huge man last can shift hundreds of degrees in like, you know, just minutes, which can create a global flood. If you look at Antarctica, the reason why the Antarctica, uh, uh, you know, the animals that are, that are discovered there now have undigested food in their belly. The reason why that is, is because Antarctica used to be closer to the equator. And because of a pole shift, it moved there very rapidly, allowing those animals to flash freeze because the water came, cold water came over them with the cold air, everything else. They flash froze with undigested food in their stomach, which is now being discovered today. So we know that was a pole shift that happened that moved Antarctica into the position that it's in now. So we have those pole shifts. We also have something else called a magnetic pole shift. We know that by going to volcanic areas and taking the volcanic rock and putting a compass next to it, we can see in some cases 
going back 26, 27,000 years, that the magnetic field has flipped on Earth. So South is North and North is South. Mm. And we're in the process of flipping right now. Magnetic North is not true North anymore. It's moved over Russia. It's actually passing Russia now, which means that all the airliners, all the airports around the world have changed some of the landing, uh, the degrees for the landing coordinates uh, so that airplanes can land because it's all based on coordinates and, and, and magnetic north. So they've had to actually change the coordinates to the landing strips because of this. And we're in the middle of a flip. Soon, north will be south and south will be north magnetically, <clears throat> which is going to create a little bit of What are the implications of that? Well, we're talking about chaos. If it's, if it's not, if we're not prepared for it, if it just happens really quickly, you know, you have GPS errors. Planes that can crash, satellites can come back to Earth and crash. Uh, you know, they'll lose their orbits. Um, anything that relies on uh, GPS technologies and things like that are going to have a major, major problem. Everything will need a software update. Everything will need to be reconfigured. Yeah, so that's another, you know, potential catastrophe that can happen. And then, of course, you have things like comets and, and asteroids. <clears throat> we have a couple of really big ones to think about. I don't want to say worry because I'm not a, I'm not a doomsday person, but... Apophis slipped by Earth and the moon about, I don't know if it was seven, eight years ago, whatever it was. It, was, it slipped through a gravitational keyhole. Now, in orbital mm. mechanics, that's not good. <laughs> this thing is about the size of Texas. The next time it comes around in 2030-something, there's a potential, not definite, but there's a potential that could scrape our atmosphere or hit the Earth, which is why Obama ordered this special mission to land on a comet and learn how to shift its orbit because you can't blow them up because then you have a lot of debris coming in at once and sure, destroying sure. everything. It's like the movies. You need to figure out how to divert, how to like shift it just a couple degrees to like get it off. That's all you got to do. So we have that. So there's all these different things that happen on these specific cycles, you know, that we're concerned about. There's another one coming February 14th, Valentine's Day. Hmm. Again, another 2030 or 2040 something. It slipped through a gravitational keyhole, and it could be an impact with Earth, Earth as well. It's a little bit smaller, but still deadly. So we have these things that are out there that, you know, we're in this Goldilocks time frame of mankind right now where we are allowed to grow to this, <clears throat> this, this, uh, this level of technology. And the only thing that will save us is can we technologically continue to advance to the point where we can save ourselves from these type of disasters? Mm. What about getting off planet? Do you think that's important? I think it's majorly important to get off planet and create breakaway civilizations. That, that's what the Anunnaki did. They came to Earth as a breakaway civilization, and mm -hmm. they went to Mars as well. And I think in order to uh, ensure our longevity as a species in the universe, we need to get off this planet and create breakaway civilizations in other places. I, I, think, it's, I think it's important, extremely important. Uh, isn't Nibiru on a 3,600 year cycle of coming into mm -hmm. our orbit or orbiting near us? Yeah, so it's shifted orbit over time. So mm -hmm. in the beginning stages, according to the Enuma Elish, it was a, a shar, 3,600 years. Now they've rediscovered this object, which they say is about four to six times larger than Earth. It is very strange elliptical orbit around our sun, and it has a brown dwarf star with it. So it's orbiting a brown dwarf star. And this brown dwarf is orbiting our sun every 4,200 years now. So it's shifted over time. It's oh, moving. Okay. Just like our moon is moving back a few centimeters every single year. In about, you know, in, in 100,000 years, it'll be a tiny dot in the sky. Same thing is happening with this uh, brown dwarf in Nibiru. So do is it your understanding that Nibiru coming into our orbit on its cycle has been part of our evolutionary upgrades? It's been part of it's been part of geological disasters, not the upgrades. The upgrades came mm -hmm. from 
um, the Anunnaki coming here and tinkering with our DNA. But the biggest part of our genetic upgrades and our DNA upgrade has been the fact that our solar system undulates up and down like this as it goes around the Milky Way galaxy. Now, this undulation represents hundreds of thousands of miles, hundreds of millions of miles up and down. Right now, we are at the galactic equator line. So we're direct center to the supermassive black hole at the center of our, our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Mm -hmm. There are super high charge streaming particles coming straight at us right from the Milky Way uh, center, from the black from the black hole, right towards us and penetrating us and altering and changing our DNA. These supercharged energetic particles are, in my opinion, changing us, upgrading us, helping us to awaken ourselves as well. Does this affect the Schumann residence on the planet? Is that what that is? Yes, it affects the Schumann residence on the planet and the frequency of the planet itself. I'm 40 years old, like, you know, in our lifetime, are we going to see a drastic difference or how long do you think it's going to take to really, truly evolve? You know, the evolution of our consciousness happens very fast, although mm. because our lifespans are short, it seems like it's taking forever. So you look at um, 100 years ago, we were in a horse buggy and carriage. And now, now we can put a remote control car on a, on a, on a planet like Mars, right? And look and look around Mars. Yeah. We've come a very, very long way in a short period of time. I think consciously we have the capability of seeing some significant change in our lifetime. So, you know, I'm 52. I'll be, well, I'll be 52 in September. And so, I think before I leave this Earth, as long as nothing crazy happens to me, I'll get a chance to witness some of the most miraculous and most incredible changes in the way that we think and perceive ourselves and the world and how we begin to change this planet. I think I'll be in the very beginning stages, at least get to witness some of that before mm -hmm. I leave. And so it's this process where, you know, it happens over time. It could be another three, 4,000 years to see the world we truly want to see, but we'll get glimpses of it. And like I say, mankind is like a baby learning how to walk. So right now we're crawling. And we're trying to grab onto the edge of the couch or a little table and pull ourselves up. And so we're getting this excitement with this global awakening that's happening. It's the baby trying to stand up. Eventually, that baby will take a step, but then the baby will fall. And it'll look like it all came crashing to an end again. And people will get depressed and angry and frustrated. But it's just a process of learning how to walk. Eventually, that baby grabs on. It, it cries, but it grabs on and pulls up and takes two steps, falls. Three, four, five steps, falls. Eventually, the baby learns how to walk. And that's where we have to get to. That's why it's going to take so much more time. Yeah. Walking is a series of controlled falls. That's the actual definition. And we have to get to that point where we're controlling our fall. Oh, wow. All right. If there was like one, one tangible takeaway that everyone could to grab onto and keep in mind, what would that be to help our ascension and to help our evolution? I think the biggest thing I could tell people is to look into their own selves self-help, self-work, shadow work, you know, biohacking, meditation, you know, eating clean, exercise, uh, and then also operating in service to others, unconditional love for others. When somebody gets you angry or frustrated, that's a mental test. Can you withdraw those emotions? Can you feel them but and work through them and then say, you know what, that person did something to me, but I blessed this person because we have the power to bless people. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, don't get angry and flip them off. Run up in your mind and say, wait a minute, stop. 
I bless this person. I hope they make it to their destination safely. These are the type of mental, spiritual tests we need to be putting ourselves through on a daily basis to get, get ourselves to ascend to the higher level. It's like lifting weights. You become stronger and stronger, and then you become incredible. You become an incredible being of light that way. Well, thank you. I have a lot of work to do on the road, not getting mad at people. <laughs> it's a very common source of frustration for me, yeah, yeah. but I will work on that. That is my test. Okay. Um, one of many. Um, thank you, Billy. Amazing, like blow your mind stuff. And I'm sure everybody else is thinking the same thing. So keep doing the good work and um, I'll be watching. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.